Uh, today we're going to look at uh, the book of Nehemiah. Raj opened up the book for us fantastically last week, talking about uh, God's heart and break my heart for what break yours. And this week we're going to look at the second chapter, and I've asked two of our youth to come and uh, read the chapter for me. So Jake and Shalom, if you'd like to come forward, please. And um, It's the whole chapter, but I'm not going to make an apology because uh, it's the Word of God. Um, so, Jake, if you could come along, and Shalom, please. Thank you. Yes. So it's Nehemiah chapter 2. In the first month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Mm -hmm. Then... I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been, been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, Why are you questioning? So I prayed to God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild. No. Rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors and no, of the province, province, I can't say that word, but yeah, beyond the river that may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall accompany. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters 
now the king had sent me with, or the other way around, with me officers of the horsemen, but Sanballat, the Hornite, and Tobia, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Finally, thank you. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for, for three days. Then I arose in the light, I and a few men with me, and I told no one when my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by the, by the night by the valley gate to the dragon's spring um, and to the giant gate. And I inspe inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on the fountain gate, fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected, inspected the wall, and I, I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned, and the efficiency did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told Jews or Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the, the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, we are in, how Jerusalem lies in rain, in rains with the gates burned. <clears throat> Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derisions. And I told them, of the hand of God that had been upon, upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and, and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Jeshem, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered up at us and despised us and said, "What is the thing that you're doing? Are doing? Are you rebelling against the king?" Then I replied to them, "The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right to come to Jerusalem." Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent. Brilliant. I saw all those hard names and difficult names in there, and I thought somebody else should do the work. Brilliant. Well done. It's just great to get our youth involved in doing things. Gavin and Haley are doing wonderful work in there. We usually and often ask Gavin in our elders' meeting about how things are going, and it's just great. Um, so a bit of background about this chapter. There's uh, 500 years of glorious days for Israel. Uh, they've all come to an end because uh, Babylonians attacked them. 
they took most of them captive, uh, destroyed the temple. It's just not a good time for uh, Jews and the nation of Israel. They used to be sovereign. There's nothing left for, uh, for them. They're in captivity for 70 years. And uh, what happens is that Persians um, go and liberate them. Uh, what they do is it's, it's not uh, uncivilized like the Babylonians because they're Persians, you see. Um, and Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. That's an important job. You can imagine, as somebody who's actually not from that nation, he's had to go through lots of checks, DBS checks and other things, maybe a citizenship test. Um, quite difficult to have that sort of sensitive job um, that is very close to the king. And right from here, I want to encourage you, if you're not from this nation, and in particular, if you're a refugee, um, you see that in the Bible we can uh, read and see quite a lot of refugees, sometimes uh, from the nation of Israel, sometimes from other nations, who actually become refugees within the Israel, um, the nation of Israel. Um, and I want to encourage you, don't just think that you're here and you're a guest, because you're not. You've been here for more than three days, and therefore you're not a guest, particularly at this church. You're one of us. And if God has brought you here... Uh, then there's a purpose and reason behind it. So whatever you do, whether it's a top-ranking job in the society or whether it's just a normal job that you do, use it for, for the glory of God. Whatever you do, use it for God's glory. Wherever you are, know that God has brought you here for a reason and therefore you've got a part to play. Can I do it Joseph Murilla's style and say, can I get an, an amen for that? Is that okay? And that's not just true for our refugee friends, for my fellow refugee friends, but in the case of everyone in here, uh, we're all here, um, and we know that our ultimate home is somewhere else, but we're here for a reason, and therefore, use the situation that God has put you in, use the gifting and skills that God has given you for His glory. Uh, the events in here take place in Persia, the most powerful nation on earth at the time, something similar to today's day Teesside. Um, but uh, Nehemiah is there, but he's unhappy. He hears the news, as uh, Raj told us last week, and he weeps. He cries. The news is not really something that he wants it to hear. It's broken walls back home. The walls are broken. There's nothing left. Broken walls are a sign of shame. Uh, they make the city vulnerable. So the walls have come down. Let me tell you a story. I actually was born near the place where Nehemiah used to live, uh, just about 100 miles away. Um, and we had to relocate uh, because of war. So uh, after eight years or so of war, my dad and uncles, they all went back um, to our city to find out what they can rebuild and whether we can carry on with our lives there because life was always uncertain. We don't actually belong here. We want to go back home. So they went back, um, and after a few days, they came back uh, with a few photos. Um, they showed the photos to everyone in the family and there was suddenly a cry of mourning uh, amongst my aunties, um, everybody, my grandmother. And when I looked at the photos, I was young, about seven or eight years old. Uh, there was nothing but just a few bricks left. So they'd gone to where their house used to be uh, to look at it, inspect it, hoping that they can do a bit of repair to it and we can all go back but there was just a few bricks left of the house, and there was mourning for a few days in the house. Nehemiah was in uh, an even worse situation because the whole city was in that situation. Uh, to my parents and uh, the whole family, nostalgia was the only remedy because they didn't have the God of Israel to cling on to. However, Nehemiah had another plan. He had something else in plan. 
events happen in Susa. I don't know why they changed the names, because some of the names in there, uh, some of the natives don't pronounce them anything like we do in English, but hey. So the town of Susa is called Shush. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> you can use that to your children. But uh, <laughs> So this is the town where uh, Israelites have got freedom. Uh, can we go to the next slide, please? That near the Persian Gulf is where I was born, just 100 miles down south. And the next slide, please. So you can see Nehemiah and the rest of Israel living in what used to be called Persia, today's day Iran, freely worshipping God. Now, a few thousand years later, that part of the world in red, if you can see, is the part where Christians are highly persecuted. So the top ten countries in the world are in red, and most of them are in that area where the events are happening here. So at one point in time, the people and the king and the whole nation welcome people of God in. They welcome them and say, oh yeah, worship your God, do whatever you want to do, do it the way that you feel like. Yeah, you're actually a blessing to us. A couple of thousand years later, they don't want people who believe in God. They kick them out, they kill them. And we have people from four nations in the top ten list of highly persecuted Christians in this church. What does that tell you about the makeup of the church? What does that tell you about God's plan? What does that tell you about history and how uncertain it is? The church is highly persecuted in that part of the world. In fact, the area in the red, particularly in the Middle East that you, uh, you see, it's been mentioned in the Bible quite a lot. Um, my ancestors used to live there. I remember in um, a new day, there's a, a song called Christus Victor, um, and it talks about the victory of Jesus. And right halfway through, Simon, who was leading worship, he stops singing the song and talks about victory and how uncertain it is that victory is temporary. So one country wins another country, and a hundred years later, that, another country comes up and takes over. And that victory is never there forever, but one victory. And that's the victory that Jesus won for us. The fact that he overcame darkness, as Mavosh was saying in her testimony, that how she felt free, that she was out of darkness into the light, that is the only victory that remains in the whole course of history. What Jesus did remains forever. And don't worry if you're from England. England has also been mentioned in the Bible. Uh, uh, you, you, have you not heard it? And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasures, pastures, seen? Is that, oh, is that not the Bible? Oh, sorry. Maybe I should have done more. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So we can see how things can change in history quite easily. Let's get back to Nehemiah and chapter 1. Let's see... Uh, we always say that you can see the footprints of Jesus in the Old Testament, don't we? Um, sometimes people try to get one verse, even just one particular verse, and get Jesus out of it. We don't want to butcher the Bible that way, but we can see Jesus right from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament there. The book of Nehemiah can be mishandled by people, people who want to jump too quickly into applications. And sometimes people look at it as a manual on leadership. Yeah, it's got great lessons about leadership, it's got great lessons um, about a godly leadership, but it's not just that. And it's, it wasn't written for us to use it as a manual. And that's why sometimes it's been mishandled. Uh, you can draw certain valuable lessons from it, uh, but it's not just that. Um, Nehemiah was leading a revival. Nehemiah was leading people back to who they used to be, back to their own identity, back to the good times, back to their 
God of their fathers, Jehovah. Nehemiah was leading them into a place where they could freely worship God and be in His presence. What their fathers experienced. Well, what happens is, as you read through the book, and if you come to the end of it, it starts with great hope and wonderful and it's all amazing. And people come and get started working and they make all sorts of promises and they go towards the end and the heart of human being is revealed. What we were singing about the grace of God, if it wasn't for the grace of God, we wouldn't be here because we've all made promises to God and we've broken them, just like the people at the time of Nehemiah. What happened was, Nehemiah took them back, there was a revival, it was all amazing. People make promises and say, God, we're going to worship you all the time so that you bless us. And what happens is, it doesn't take long for them to break the promises and go after false gods. But Nehemiah was pointing to something greater in the future, forward, just like the rest of the Old Testament. Preparing the way for Messiah. It's a real story about a real man, and he's preparing the nation for the anticipation of the Messiah. There are gospel truths in there that you can see. People who are about to experience revival, but they've got no power on themselves. The title for today was a Powerful Prayer. I don't need to convince you that prayer is great. I was talking to Karen this morning about prayer. In fact, we have lots of different settings that we can uh, we get together to pray at Jubilee. And today, just before we start the meeting, our ministry team got together, just like they do every, um, every Sunday before the meeting, and we prayed. And we were praising God and praying. So it's not about the importance of prayer. Um, but what Karen was uh, saying was that prayer is a privilege given to us by God. So imagine the king of the universe, the king of kings, um, who's the most powerful, but he actually allows us to go before him and talk to him. That is prayer. We've got many different settings at Jubilee. In our elders' meeting, um, in different settings, we've got the Wednesday prayer meeting coming up. We've got other different settings that meet regularly to pray. And that just tells you how important the prayer is. The fact that we're all here today is the result of prayers many years ago that still continue so I don't need to convince you that it's important. However, we're going to look at two ways of that Nehemiah prayed. Are we consistent in our prayer, just like Nehemiah? Nehemiah 1 happens in the month of Kishlev. Nehemiah 2 happens in the month of Nisan. Now, the month of Nisan comes right after the month of Toyota and right before the month of Mazda. But in the Hebrew calendar. No, it doesn't. Um, the Hebrew calendar is a bit different. And the month of Nisan uh, is kind of March time, whereas Kishlev is November, December. So, and that's around four months in between, each, um, in between the chapters. So chapter one, four months later, chapter two. What, what did Nehemiah do within those four months? So he just heard the news, he got a bit nostalgic, he got a bit emotional, cried, and that was it, and then he went back to normal. No, four months of prayer. Four months of weeping before God. Four months. Is that long? Some of us might think. Because we're used to instant coffee and doing things instantly and applications online that tell you straight away yes or no. Look at, let's look at some of the things and find out whether four months was long. How long was Joseph in prison before we actually became something similar to today's day, Prime Minister of Egypt? The second person to Pharaoh only. He was there for two years in prison. Abraham, how long did he have to wait until 
God delivered his promise and gave him the son that he had promised, Isaac. It was 25 years. 25 years for a promise to come through. Israel, how long were they in the desert running around, wandering in the desert? 40 years. Prior to that, as a nation, they were in slavery for 400 years. Now tell me four months is long. Nehemiah comes from that culture. He knows that four months before God, praying is nothing. Because the stories he's heard about his forefathers are just amazing. They talk about long times of prayer before God. When was the last time you wept about the conditions of your city? Just like Nehemiah did. So Nehemiah goes before the king and the king sees, I'm not going to pronounce his name because it's nothing like the actual name. Artaxerxes is there. He sees Nehemiah. You can tell that Nehemiah has always done a good job. Why? Because the king realizes he's not well today. So he thinks, if Nehemiah is not well today, I'm not going to be well tomorrow because he tastes my food. And if it's food poisoning, then I'm going to be ill tomorrow. So I might as well ask him. But wait, it's not like he's unwell physically. I can tell he's from his heart. Maybe he's in love. Let me ask him. So he says, Nehemiah, what's the purpose of your face? Nehemiah says, mm. he doesn't say anything. He's been praying for four months. What he does is, he says another quick prayer. Isn't that amazing? As if four months wasn't enough, he prays again and says, I pray to the God of heaven and then I said to the king this. So it's amazing. Isn't that a great lesson for all of us that no matter how long we pray, it's always good to do things just after we prayed to the God of heavens, to the king of kings. So four months and then a couple of seconds. So it's one of those moments like, Lord, help me. You, know, you remember when you were a child and your mom called you and said, uh, can you come and explain this? You would just say, Lord, help me, and you'd go and explain it to your mom. Um, Nehemiah knew that he couldn't look miserable before the king because you could actually lose your life because of that, because you'd make the king upset. And as a result, you'd obviously lose your job and your position. When the king asks him, Nehemiah doesn't jump quickly into asking the king for favor, but he just says, it's because of my fathers. He actually uses something that identifies with the king. Because, yes, they both live in a similar place, but there are lots of cultural differences. Lots of things that Nehemiah believed to be, to be true, but the king also believed to be true, as well as other things. So Nehemiah uses something that the king identifies with. Fathers. They were important. They're still important. Family. Very important. He says, look, my father's grave is being disgraced because they've attacked the city, there's no walls, uh, it's bringing shame on me. You understand that, don't you? And the king feels that. Nehemiah had an art, art of waiting on God in prayer and the art of communicating things to other people who weren't necessarily within the circle of his society. I remember we were in um, Sheffield uh, with Luke uh, for leadership training and the, one of the people who was uh, teaching us, I think it was on Genesis, so I don't know how we got into this, but he started giving us a personal testimony, talking about his family. So when he was younger, he had an older brother. They were going to the same school and his brother gets involved with gangs in school to do with drugs and other things. So he waits a few days and he thinks, no, it's not, 
nothing temporary. So he goes to his dad and says, Look, dad, I've got something to tell you. It's not pleasant, but my older brother is not hanging around with me anymore, but he's in trouble. And this is what he's doing. He's um, getting involved with gangs and other things. It's not helpful. He's going to be in trouble soon. And he said, my, his dad thanked him and said, all right. The next day he was expecting his dad to take his older brother to the room and talk to him. Nothing happened. Two days later, nothing. Three days, nothing happened. But a week later, his brother was sorted. Um, in fact, the gang had kicked him out and said, oh, you, we don't want you. Uh, so he went to his dad and said, Dad, I didn't see you talking to my brother or doing anything to him. So what happened? So his dad told him, Oh, I did the best thing I could do. I went before God and said, Look, you gave me this son. I'm bringing him before you and I'm asking you to sort it. And it was sorted. Just took a week. Not four months or 25 years or anything. So we've got lots of parents here. And I can tell you that I've been in situations where parents have been praying for their children. Dennis and Kirian, it was amazing to see them faithfully praying for their son to be healed. And look what God has done. If you're a parent and if your children are not behaving in the way they should be, if you're parents and you're worried about your children, look, don't start planning things. Don't start uh, doing things. Don't start going on courses. Don't start talking to them straight away. Take them before the God of universe. Go before God and ask Him to deal with it. Ask Him to give you the wisdom and strength that you need. Hudson Taylor says, don't work so hard that you wouldn't have strength to pray because prayer requires strength. Now, how many of us are guilty of that? I don't want you to put your hands up, but I will because I've been sometimes working so hard for the sake of Christ that I've had no strength to pray. And it's usually supposed to be the other way around. We read in the Bible, don't be anxious about anything, but instead go before God in prayer. The king asks Nehemiah, how long are you going to be away for? I, do you know what? It, was, uh, it wasn't like this culture where you've got to give exact time. I'll be back at 11 o'clock on Sunday, the 21st of March. No, you probably had given some sort of estimate, but we know from the whole book that he, it took about 12 years, and it's probably true that he went back now and again just to see the king. But there's another lesson in here. What Nehemiah was brokenhearted about costed him a lot. So he heard about Jerusalem, he was brokenhearted, but he had to make a decision because there was a problem, he had to sort it. But the problem meant that he had to give up his position. The problem meant that he wouldn't be able to live in the luxurious life that he had with the king. Instead, he had to go to the ruins of Jerusalem, a city that was ruined, a place where there'll be lots of people who'd be opposing him, there'll be lots of people that maybe are not pleasant. But yet, he decided to do that. Now, take a look around and see if you see people like that. If you see people who hear from God to give up their jobs, the jobs that they've been studying for for many, many years, jobs that they've been working for really hard for many years, and then God tells them, look, I know, Raj, you studied how long? 12, 13, 18 years? Um, now, you're a GP? Uh, okay, but I want you to give up... Sorry? Oh, well, <laughs> we can tell that sometimes. <laughs> but then God tells him, um, look, I want you to uh, give up a few days and not practice what you, what you studied hard for, what you really worked hard for. And that is a great example to me because when we get together as elders at least once a week, it's just amazing to see faithful people 
like Raj, like Simon, like Gavin, around who are just there for God and would give anything for him. Are you willing to give up things like Nehemiah? And look, these guys are not the only ones in this room. If you want to find out who else is around, I'll tell you. You can imagine when Nehemiah was praying, maybe he was discussing it with his friends as well to say, um, I'm thinking of doing this. I'm thinking of asking the king and give up my job. What do you think? His friends would probably think and maybe talk to each other afterwards and say, you know, don't you think Nemo's gone mad? Don't you think Nemo is not feeling well? He's losing the plot. He's thinking of giving up his job. Maybe he was mocked by his friends, but he had a holy discontent. What holy discontent is God laying on your heart? What is it that you feel in your heart that God is calling you to that you're praying about? Maybe it's to do with this nation. Maybe it's to do with the nations. Maybe it's something else. But what is it that God has put in your heart? Does your heart break as you leave your house and you know that some of your neighbors don't believe in Jesus? Do you feel discontent about your towns? When was the last time that you went around the town or wherever you live to inspect it spiritually and to pray for it? That's what Nehemiah did. He went around the town. He didn't tell anyone what he was about to do. But he just went around to look for things. When was the last time you did it? I remember one point in our fasting worship group where I just felt that God is staring our hearts based on Nehemiah. Uh, sorry, based on the words of Jeremiah that seek the prosperity of the town that I send you to in exile. Well, we're not in exile. This is home to us. But I felt that God is calling us to go around the town and pray. And as we did that, there was a love that God put in our hearts about this, this part of the world. It was there, but it just raises something in you. So I want to encourage you, wherever you live, as you leave your houses, ask God what he has for you. Don't feel so content with what he's already done, because there's so much more. Nehemiah prayed for four months. Let's pray, even if it takes four years or 40. The fact that we're here today, it just didn't happen overnight. Many people have been praying. A good friend of mine always used to say, I truly believe that somebody or a group of people must have been praying for me to come to Christ by name because I know my past life and I know that it would have been impossible to come to God, the person that I used to be. What's our response? What are you going to do about it? What do we learn from this part of Nehemiah about four months of prayer, about a quick prayer? What do we learn about him going around the city inspecting it? What do we learn about his re response, about the last verse that we read? Yeah, you're going to oppose us. We're going to do what we we've been called to. We're going to rebuild the wall. What are you going to do when there is opposition? In our ministry team prayer this morning, we were talking about reformations in this country. Marish and I were watching something on Henry VIII last night. And that was the time when reformations happened, when Lutherans were killed, people who thought that they could read the Bible in their own language and actually understand it, and it's okay, they were being killed. And that's only 500 years ago. Many people have stood up and have given their lives so that we're here today standing up on a great legacy. What are we going to do for the next generation? And the next generation is not the people who are, being, who are here after we've gone home. The next generation is here amongst us. What are we going to do about it?
let me tell you, the first thing and the best thing that a Christian can do is to kneel down and go before God. That's what Nehemiah did. Are you willing to do that? Yes, it might get messy, but the only thing messier than following God is not following Him. I had a friend, he used to uh, live in the West European country. Um, he was actually from there. He said that when God called him to go to a dangerous place in the world, a place where was red on the map, and take 200 Bibles with him, he thought, all right. He went and bought the Bibles, put them in his suitcase, and just rang his in-laws to say, look, I'm going, will you make sure my wife and the children are okay if they need anything? And they said, you're crazy. That is dangerous. You're going to be killed. And the response was, uh, yeah, you might think I'm crazy, but it's not dangerous. The only thing that is more dangerous to that is for me not to follow God and stay around. And I want to tell you that sometimes things might feel like it's better not to follow God. Following God can be messy. Following God will have a cost for you to pay in many different shapes and forms. But the only thing that is more dangerous than that is not following Him. Live in the perfect will of God. So I think in response to this, it's great to kneel down before God. I know we did it last week. It's not a tradition. We're not doing it out of tradition. Because um, tradition doesn't mean much, really. It's got to be from your heart. If you are comfortable to go before God, here, on your knees, and ask Him, what is it that you have for me? What is your will for my life? What is it that you've put in my heart? Or maybe you already know, but you think, it's, it's costing me a lot. It's costing me my friends. It's costing me my job. Is it really from God? Go before God on your knees and ask Him. Are we ready for that? Are you up for it? Is that okay? So let's go down on, the, on our knees before God and ask Him, what discontent is it that he's laid on our hearts? Or what is it that he is willing for us? And let prayer be the steering wheel of that, just like Corita Moom says, not the spare tire. I'm not going to ask the ministry team to come up, uh, sorry, the band to come up, or the ministry team to go around and pray. Bef just before the King of Kings, let's spend a few minutes in prayer.